February, a little I, late. Yeah, I don't know if we can still, if we can still say that. Um, but how has your term been so far? Um, it's been very good. It's been full of exams and things. Yeah. How about you? Good. I think this is when I always feel the is the hardest point of the year, especially I think when it's so dark here up in the northern hemisphere at the top. Then. <laughs> Yeah, it just, yeah, that kind of dark, cold, and then feeling like there's lots of work. Looking forward to it getting lighter and workload getting a little bit lighter. Uh, but that is obviously only just where we are, because friends around the world keep sending me pictures of them in glorious sunshine. So, <laughs> Or in deep, deep snow yes. as well, which is something we haven't really had in London, but other people have had. Yeah, and you were telling me about snow days, Alan. I was, because... I just feel like people are being about to be cheated out of the great thing that is a snow day <laughs> because so many of my friends this week have messaged me saying it's a snow day. Teacher friends don't have to go in. Great. They're very joyful. I imagine every child they teach is also very happy. And then um, I was reading through a BBC News article um, about how in America they've started to roll out a program where snow days are e-learning days, which just seems to be such a terrible idea because... <laughs> There's not much, like, it's just such a joyful thing when you win a day back from the education system. Yeah, it really is. And then to be able to say, actually, no, teachers are going to have to do a register in the morning and then be online to answer questions, and children are going to have to do all this work that you've set. Is that what it is? That yes. is it's, not just, it's not just like you sent, you're sent home with a little pack of things. It's like a proper interactive e-learning experience. Oh, my gosh. I thought that you were saying it's a bit of kind of, oh, kids get a bit of work to do and they do some work because they're yeah. at home for that day which I'm not totally anti, but then I also think they could just pick up a book, couldn't they? Because what, they could watch a great documentary if they wanted. You're so hopeful <laughs> they're not going to do that when they're going to play Fortnite or whatever it is they're playing at the moment. But then you're supposed to, as the teacher, be online to mm. support. You can't go make snow angels. Oh, no, I'm very, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this. <laughs> but then, uh, then I was reading, an, it's quite an old article actually, it's from 2014, also BBC News, and there was a study done by a Harvard academic which said that closing schools on occasional days does not actually damage learning. Yeah, so there are places issues. at the moment, aren't there, say like Chicago's having this um, incredible... Huge, polar vortex. Yeah, yeah, that's the word, polar, <laughs> the polar vortex. And uh, it's freezing and there might be places that are having to close for long periods of time, but that's totally different than you have to put a contingency plan in place. But... Yeah, I think the occasional snow day I'm very much in favour of. Mm. It just brings a lot of joy. Well, exactly. Good, Broken bones and joy. <laughs> <laughs> Have you broken a bone? No, I just saw a picture of someone sledging quite enthusiastically. Okay, so the next thing that I thought it would be good to talk about is uh, the way that students are protesting against climate change around the world. Um, and I think it's a really interesting trend because as I saw on Instagram that the Guardian newspaper had posted about thousands of teenagers in Belgium striking. So this Thursday, it was um, about 30,000 people. So it's a huge number of students. They skipped school and um, they went on marches protesting saying that the gov that they have a human right for the government to take more action towards preventing climate change. So, you know, people were 
marching and they were protesting outside ministers' houses and I just think it's incredibly powerful uh, because I know it's not the first of these marches. I know I was talking about Greta Thunberg who is a 16-year-old Swedish girl on her 24th week of protesting. She takes Fridays out of school um, and uh, you can follow what she's doing on hashtag Fridays for Future but she is doing that as a weekly protest um, against the government not taking enough action towards climate change and I just think it's so interesting that young people are taking ownership for what what is going to affect their generation and trying to yeah get the government to act and I also think it's a very interesting notion to skip school because if the government has a legal responsibility to keep you in school, then that is how you're going to get the government to stand up and take notice. So it's pretty clever. I was reading a few of the things she said, because I think one of the great things about children is they are brutally honest. Um, she says some things like, the climate crisis is a black and white issue. We need to stop emissions and greenhouse, greenhouse gases. And I want you to panic. We're going to reach a tipping point where we can't go back. So we have to act now. Um, and then when she says, when people say to her, you're just a child and we shouldn't be listening to children. And she says, just listen to the rock-solid science instead. <laughs> and I mean, that is, that is part, part of education, isn't it? If, if actually it was, if places are succeeding in helping children to realise and recognise the science and actually what's going on above seemingly a lot of world leaders. Solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that Homo sapiens has ever, have ever faced. The main solution, however, is so simple that even a small child can understand it. We have to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. And either we do that or we don't. You say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie, a very dangerous lie. Either we prevent a 1.5 degree of warming or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control, or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization, or we don't. That is as black or white as it gets. We must change almost everything in our current societies. The bigger your carbon footprint is, the bigger your moral duty. The bigger your platform, the bigger your responsibility. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. That's Greta speaking at Davos this week. Okay, so next we're going to talk about um, global megatrends facing education. Um, and these were postulated by um, Andreas Schleider, who is OECD Director of Education and Skills. The OECD is an economic think tank. And it's in charge of the international PISA tests, which we have mentioned before with our reservations. <laughs> Indeed. But um, anyway, he highlights some interesting things that we should be thinking about going into the future as teachers. Um, and one of them is the wealth gap versus social mobility. So the gap between the richest and poorest is widening. 
and with it's also there within education systems, which we found actually as we've spoken to teachers around the world, it kind of mimics what we see here yeah. in England. Um, and actually I was at a conference recently about mixed attainment teaching, so not setting children, and they were saying that's one of the ways to avoid such an imbalance within schools and to remove the barrier of which social class, I guess, you are in arriving at school, um, because exams and setting just benefit people who have that support at home who are able to revise and sit an end of year exam and be put into a higher set whereas mixed attainment teaching everyone's taught the same thing and you don't get that division and everyone benefits from it from the studies they've done yeah I guess every time we talk about mixed attainment it's just hard in practice I think whenever I think of the difficulties of mixed attainment teaching I think oh but then how on earth am I supposed to get this class of people ranging from like people who feasibly are going to get the absolute top grade to someone who's going to scrape their, the past grade and how do I get all of them to fill their achievement but that's because my focus often in that that position mm. it has to be and it's made to be on exams and yeah. exam results it's very hard because in mixed attainment you are telling children to measure themselves up against themselves and to look at their own personal progress and to think I couldn't do this last week and I can do it this week and then you throw them into something where you're just measuring up against the rest of the country in a national exam and you always have to un- end up undoing all your good work. Yeah. Which is very sad. But if you remove exams, then it's very hard to measure any um, success, I guess. It is, but then there are, school- there are places like um, Sweden where they only examine a small number of subjects. Mm. So they examine, I think, Swedish, English, maths, and then they examine one science, and you only find out which science is being examined uh, something like six months before. Oh, right. So I think I think there are ways that different places around the world are approaching exams. I think, unfortunately, a lot of places do look to the UK education system, and I think there's a lot of issues to do with um, <laughs> the way that different countries are viewed and actually kind of a weird sense of, like, education and colonialism in, in that, mm. um, which is probably too much for now, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this way and there are people doing different things and coming up with different ideas but uh, yeah I think the exams going is probably unlikely really. it is when our last big education reform a few years ago was to just bring in tougher exams wasn't it <laughs> so he's we almost went backwards um, another one of the trends is uh, this idea that uh, children are always connected to the internet um, mm. and whether schools should kind of embrace this or whether they should it, within school time kind of push back against that and it's quite interesting because the minister for education nick gibb has said this week that he thinks that mobile phones in schools in england should be banned i can totally see some of the point but i think then there are there are teachers who've come and said well we don't have the money in our schools for i don't know let's say ipads or computers so we do get people to use their phones because they've got a huge amount of technology in them and i found that like it's amazing for you know, if you if we've got all this science lab equipment, like stop separate stop clocks and light gates, but you've got with your phone, you do kind of slow motion video and you can record things falling and measure speed, distance, time, all those kind of fundamental quantities. You can often measure temperature with your phone. You, you can do so many things that I think it's maybe short sighted to just get rid of them. Um, but that's a kind of just a side point on England's education system. But it is interesting. Like, that is something that people are going to have to think of around the world is how much do we use the internet, how much do we use global connectivity to bring it into the classroom? I think the worry is not, like, you can see that it's a good education tool and people benefit from having access to all that information. Predominantly, it's not used for that 
by yeah. children that it's used for social media, which is very difficult to monitor and also to see the benefits of in the school day. I think there's ways that schools can get to use it, but think about it smartly. Like I have been very impressed with my school that basically you can't really get phone signal in the school building. Which oh, I know how they manage that? So because it's quite a new new building, I'm not really sure of the logistics. <laughs> but in the school that you and I both worked in, there was something to, in that as well in the phone oh, school really? that we worked at. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Um, so you just never used my phone then. <laughs> Um, oh, back in great 2011, where you just didn't have to have your phone on you all the time. <laughs> uh, but also, they so that means that then the, the kids have to put their phone on the Wi-Fi. Um, so um, loads of things are blocked, but basically if you access the app, then you can see it. So I think there are smart ways to tackle mm, people's um, usage and support them. And maybe it just is inevit- an inevitability of people's lives. So instead of trying to just ban it, we have to think about how can we help teens be savvy and smart and understand what they're working with and another thing um that Andrea Schleider highlights is that idea that how we should be teaching digital values actually and how how are we going to do that um you know everyone is on the internet looking at people's comments and actually are we teaching children to be digitally literate and see something that is total falsity or is something you about to say bullshit <laughs> I can I don't know why I do like it's like <laughs> We're not in the classroom now, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, he calls it the echo chamber, doesn't he? Saying that you that digital technology can connect people, but also it does just let you only read things that you agree with. Yes. And how do you yeah, how do you tell that those come from a reliable or reputable source? Or how do you interpret them as just one person's opinion or something like that? And yet yeah, is it the job of schools to be kind of neutral or are they supposed to promote certain sides of a debate or an argument? Um we don't have the answers, but that's what he's saying. He's saying that um, that schools have to be thinking about this, and that's one of the challenges that's facing us. So, on to our good news uh, section at the end, um, and that is, I would say, some pretty exciting news about the Varki Foundation's um, Top 50 Teachers list is out. And there are uh, for 2019, and there are three UK teachers, and one of them is our very own Emma. Yay. So tell us why you've been uh, why you've been nominated, Emma. Thanks, Alice. So I have been doing at my previous school for a few years a um, termly event with girls and their mums or their female carers called Girls in Physics, and trying to connect firstly girls with each other who are, enjoy and are interested in physics and engineering. And then showing them people that are like them, kind of look like them, talk like them and have gone into the professions as uh, researchers or they are engineers or they've used physics for something. And we've had a whole range of different people come in and speak from people who are working on kind of bridges and tunnels as engineers to people who are um, looking at quantum physics and their research, people who are using their physics to look at um, the aftermath of like interpret the materials after kind of explosions or bombs have gone off. I have loved doing it because it, it's just very heartwarming when girls like you and I, but kind of 15, 16, 17, are saying to people, how did you feel being the only one in your A-level physics class? Or was it really okay for you as a girl slash woman going into your profession? And, and yeah, and also seeing that it is normal. Angela Sani, who wrote an excellent book, which we have both read uh, called Inferior, about how science has got 
lots of ideas to do mm. with gender wrong. I heard her speak and she said, it is normal for girls to like and enjoy physics, maths, engineering, all those. It's actually those people who've been persuaded by society that it's not for them. That's the thing that's not good. So it's been great to run those things. I have now left that school, but I'm very proud as kind of a bit of a legacy project that that is still running for Girls Across London. And um, it's being run by our fantastic teacher, Serena. It's been amazing to receive that accolade. And it's also very inspiring to read about lots of things that the other teachers are doing. Um, I think that, like we've talked about the prize before, and I think it's a really good way of making conversations about education happen and highlight the things that people are doing. It's exciting. And I'll be going along to the Global Education and Skills Forum in Dubai at the end of March. Mm -hmm. So I'll let you know how that goes. I think it's great because it raises the profile of teachers. Someone asked me the other day, do you not have a Royal College of Teaching like they have Royal College of Surgeons? And we don't. Well, I think there's been talk of it before, but there isn't one. And it just gives our profession a little bit more kudos, I think. Should we found it? Yes. Please get in touch. We love hearing from you. We're on Instagram at Education Passport, Twitter at Ed Passport, or email educationpassport at gmail.com. Also, thank you to our most recent interviewee, Darshi from Latvia. Had a really interesting discussion with Emma about why she became a teacher and also the challenges of teaching in a country post-occupation. And, and also, thank you. You may have noticed we have a new jingle to Stephen Craig, who wrote that for us. It's just very joyful. We really like it. We hope you do too. Yeah. Here it is to play you out.